I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, children, we are back on our magical, mysterious march through um, the monarchical episcopate. There you go. I needed another M there, so I threw something in for you. So no, <laughs> it's going to be a day. I know in your world these things have been popping up every week, but it's been like a month since I've recorded one, so I'm a little out of the practice here. So let's see. Today we are traveling to 15th century England. Now, do not get your history out of whack. This is going to be important to you. In the 15th century, and we are at the very, 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 very beginning of the 15th century, we are less than a half century removed from the great mortality, the Black Plague, where, you know, just, you know, you know, millions and millions and millions of people have dropped dead. So this is still a Roman Catholic kingdom, that is England. The transition, however, to becoming a country and, a, and an empire later on, ruled and worshipping through the Church of England, has begun. Why has it begun? Because Wycliffe's work has begun. Remember, he is our morning star of the Reformation. At the time of our martyrdom today... Wycliffe will have been dead for about 30 years, but that means 30-plus years of Lollards traveling around, of writings being distributed. Now, in this time period, early 15th century, we actually have a term that has popped up into the legalese of the English Empire. It is Lollardy, the crime of being a Lollard. What were the tenets of Lollardy, might you ask? Well, it's the beginnings of sola scriptura. Now, they would have not gone to solo scriptura, and neither should you. Rather, that the scriptures, the Bible, Old and New Testament in the vernacular language of the people are sufficient and exclusively ruling for faith and practice. They would have rejected transubstantiation and would have held to a version of what Luther would later hold to called consubstantiation, that Christ has a real presence in the supper, but the bread and wine are not the literal, and I'm using literally, not like a 14-year-old, like literally, but the actual definition of the word. The transubstantiation would hold that the body and the well, the the bread and the wine are the literal body and blood of Christ, and that has to do with uh, Aristotelian metaphysics on what's a sub uh, subject and what's an accident and this real substance of a thing. So it's more philosophy than it actually is theology, and that's one of the reasons why they rejected it. They would also have rejected purgatory. Why? Sola Scriptura. It is not in Scripture. You have to come up with history in order to justify purgatory. If it's not in the Bible, it's out. They would have rejected baptism and confession as salvific. Meaning, should you be baptized, Christian? Yes, as a mark of obedience. Should you confess your sins one to another? Yes, as a mark of obedience. But if you refuse to do those things in the manner prescribed by the church, are you going to hell? No, no, you're not. You're not even going to purgatory because purgatory doesn't exist. So uh, the rejection of baptism and confession as salvific is part of lollardy. 
they would have seen praying to saints and the adoration of icons as idolatrous and therefore to have been rejected. They would have also rejected both holy bread and holy water, which were things in the Roman Catholic Church and really are still things in the Roman Catholic Church, basically as vain superstition and having no real power. And they would have thought that the priestly celibacy was antichrist. And this is one of the things that will come out of the Reformation also. The understanding of a celibate priesthood as an actual affront to Christ, not something that honors him. So, it is into this world, which is in full swing, that we enter into the man, John Oldcastle. Now, John Oldcastle is an interesting character. Why do I say that? Well, if you've ever read uh, Henry IV and the various acts, and I can't even remember the other uh, play now, but John Oldcastle is the basis for Shakespeare's character, John Falstaff. So he's relatively famous. Why is he relatively famous, might you ask? Well, he's an English noble who through marriage ends up accumulating even more property than he already had. And remember, at this time in the world, property equals money, money equals influence, property equals all sorts of authority and strength in this world. <clears throat> we are still in a mostly feudal system that is moving towards a mercantile system. So and if you have no idea what I just said, Wikipedia is your friend. So having property and having lots and lots of property is kind of a big deal. So with that, he was a member of parliament. He was a sheriff. He was a justice of the peace. And before all that, following in the footsteps of his father and grandfather, he was a soldier in the army. At the time, he was a soldier alongside of a Prince of Wales, who will later become Henry V. Not he is, he is. We're a few decades away from that yet. <clears throat> so that becomes important because he is friends with the king who the bishops are trying to persuade to kill him. That's always a benefit. So he is branded a heretic. Why is he branded a heretic? Well, because John, uh, John Oldcastle was assisting the Lollards, and one of the ways he was assisting the Lollards is actually interesting because you want to talk about something fun from history is he he was accused of allowing unlicensed preachers. Now, in a monarchical episcopate, which is a word I used at the beginning, a monarchical episcopate is a church structure in which the ruling religious authority operates like a monarch. The Roman Catholic system does this. Later on, the Church of England system will continue to do this. It's one of the reasons why the Puritans had such problems with the Church of England. But in that system, then, in order to have a local parish priest, he would have had to have been licensed and certified by the area bishop, who himself would have been licensed and certified as a bishop by the more regional bishop. So in England's case, basically the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then that archbishop is typically what you would call a cardinal today, is licensed and appointed by the pope. So... England is operating under this system, but guess who owns the churches? Typically, the landowner upon which they sit. So John and his wife, I believe her name was Corrine, although I didn't write that down, so don't quote me on that. John and his wife would allow Lollards to preach in the churches that were located on their properties, thus giving safe haven to the, to the Lollards, but also giving doctrinal spread and voice to those tenants that we mentioned earlier. So this is going to put him in a bad place. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, a, uh, a man by the name of Thomas Ar uh, Arundel, Arundel, 
say it how you like, put the emphasis on whichever syllable you would prefer. He demands a, a trial of John Oldcastle. So they persuade the king to request him and persuade the king to try to cajole him in. Sir John replies to the king, Most worthy king, you know I am always prompt and willing to obey because I know that you are a Christian king and the appointed minister of God. Notice the understanding of what it means to be king. And that you bear the sword with which to punish the evildoers and protect the virtuous. Next to my eternal God, I owe you my obedience, and I am ready, as I have always been, to submit all that I have of money or properties to fulfill whatever you command me in the Lord. But concerning the Pope and his clergy, I owe them neither attendance nor service, since I know by the scriptures that he is the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the open adversary of God, and the abomination of Daniel, standing in the holy place. Whoa. That's a woe. So, Henry covers for John, allows him some freedom, allows him to kind of avoid getting, you know, slaughtered like the infidel the Roman Catholic Church would have thought that he was. At that point, though, this goes on for a few years, and John eventually attempts to lead a rebellion against the king, which would have kind of instituted lollardy in England. Now, Coinciding with this is eventually a mock trial where John is not present, where he is convicted. Now, based on that conviction, on the heels of the failed rebellion, John is eventually found about four years later and brought in, and he's asked to give a defense. As for images, I understand, this is just a portion of it, I understand that they are not a matter of faith, but were intended, since faith in Christ was tolerated by the church, to represent and bring to mind the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the martyrdom and good living of other saints. But whoever gives to dead images the worship that belongs to God, or puts hope and trust in getting help from them, as he should to God alone, or has greater affection toward them than toward God, he is committing the great sin of idol worship. Uh, I fully know this, that every person in this earth is a pilgrim toward bliss or toward pain, and he who does not know the holy commandments of God and keep them in his life here, even though he may go on pilgrimages to all the world and die doing so, he shall be damned. But he who knows the holy commandments of God and keeps them, he shall be saved, even though he never in his life went on a pilgrimage, as people do now, to Canterbury, or to Rome, or to any other place. You're just cutting in on their phony baloney jobs, and that's going to get you killed. So that's kind of what happens. John is, based on that, he is led out to execution. He has a chain wrapped around his waist. He is hoisted into the air, and they light a fire beneath him, and the crowd testifies that he was singing praises to God until he had breath no more. This is the heritage of the church upon which you stand, Christian. This is the legacy of saints gone before and understanding that no matter who in the world is coming after you, be it bishops or archbishops or popes or kings, the ultimate allegiance is, to, allegiance is to our king on high, to Christ the true king. And as we worship and rest in him, we worship and rest securely. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.